Bookworm Games, Episode 20, Museums Revisited. Welcome back. A libation, I propose, to Mimosani, memory, mother of the muses, who give their name to our main places today, the museums of Summers and Forsyth. Her name is also the root of mnemonic device, the memory help, like a rhyme or numeric or imagistic association, which unlocks for some people such incredible feats of recall. The greatest mnemonic device for me, though, aside from the soundstone, is the museum itself, or a library, or any of those new media which reproduce them and all that they contain digitally. It's treasure houses, which do not hoard up, but freely pass on memory, stories of events and artifacts, stories we tell one another, transmitting them in their massive meanings and interrelations from one generation to the next, or throughout the living generation, just as we hand down or give heirlooms themselves. Perhaps that's what the Dalamster is pondering on about immortality. Is it everlasting life? Hmm. Pooh, having come clear across the world with it, gives up his ancestral ruby, as we were saying at the end of last time. And through the door, beyond the bribed guard, there's a single item on display in the little room whose exhibit is under construction. But before you have a chance to take a closer look, the shattered man attacks. This mummy, like the zombies before in the thrall of Master Belch, is a distorted and literalized simulacrum of life after death, animated by some means, by Gigas perhaps, to clobber you. But he's susceptible to freeze sigh from Paula and Pooh, or a bash from Ness's bat and shots from Jeff's blasters to return him to dust. Then Pooh read the hieroglyphs. To fight against the invaders, we built this pyramid fortress. However, our efforts were futile and we lost. Nonetheless, our pyramid was protected by the gods of Skarala. The invaders will be reborn every millennium and will attack again. Even now, the invaders hide beyond space and time and build their evil stronghold. A place out of time is beyond the dark and is even farther beyond the lost underworld. The deep darkness is shrouded. It is without light. Only one with the Hawkeye can pierce the dark. The Sphinx now watches over everything, waiting for the coming of a truly brave hero. Period four, three, two, five. Dance in front of the Sphinx. Having deciphered so much, Pooh has a light bulb switch on above his ponytail. Let's go to Scaraba, he exclaims. The pyramid is the key. So it seems that your new friend is familiar with the unusual style and characters gracing the stone believed to have been made around 4000 BC. Combining this fact with his isolated home, his master's message from eternity about the final struggle which is about to begin and his role in it, could those holy writings that the master alludes to be written in a form of the same hieroglyphic script? At any rate, what we have here is a beautiful picture of what it is like reading difficult texts. The sacrifice to pass the threshold, the initial battling to understand, the articulation of dead letters with living breath, the sudden clarity of what to do next, expressing all this in company with friends. Before leaving, you'll get a copy of the hieroglyphs, just in case you forget how to dance before the Sphinx and want to read it again. The riddle of the Sphinx, of course, bears closely on these questions of human life and generations from last episode. Here's one. What goes on four legs at morning, two at noon, and three in the evening? It's something like the legs poem from the Riddles in the Dark chapter of The Hobbit, such a stumper for so many readers of that book. Here's how that one goes. No legs lay on one leg, two legs sat near on three legs, four legs got some. And this one comes from Bilbo. He asks Gollum, and Gollum figures it out. It's fish on a little table, a man at the table sitting on a stool, and the cat 
has the bones. But apparently, so this, this form of the riddle with legs in it, it comes from more than one ancient culture. And so perhaps dancing is a fitting answer to the Sphinx. We'll see better when we get there. But before proceeding across the sea, there are a few more secrets hidden in the museum back in Forside, relevant to what I interpret the gods of Scaraba to be referring to, your sanctuary spots, where the earth lends its power to your own. As old as the hieroglyphs may be, and a legacy of wisdom passed down the generations to reach Pooh, the dinosaur bones there in Forsyth represent something far older, though they are only a replica. Maybe those space invaders took down this dinosaur back those generations and millennia before. But supposedly dinosaurs have even been seen in southern Scaraba. So the motifs of ancient knowledge, of something that was believed to have died out, to be found living yet, and brought forward by the museums, all this contributes still more to the sense of cosmic significance to your adventure. By placing the next destination in line with the Sphinx and the Pyramid, a geographic analogy to Egypt is strongly suggested, to that civilization whose mythological and artistic impact can be traced as a substrate in the more immediate founts of Western culture around the Mediterranean. There's a major work of scholarship that Dr. McCall, aka Art Boy, used to like to mention, Black Athena. Somewhat controversial, but well-grounded in the myths of the Greeks themselves, its thesis was that Greek culture came out of Africa. And uh, in Plato's Phaedrus, for, for example, uh, there's much to be said about memory and writing, as well as love and friendship, but we also get Socrates telling this story. At the Egyptian city of Naucratis, there was a famous old god whose name was Thuth. The bird, which is called the Ibis, is sacred to him, and he was the inventor of many arts, such as arithmetic and calculation and geometry and astronomy and drafts and dice. But his great discovery was the use of letters. Now in those days the god Damos was the king of the whole country of Egypt, and he dwelt in the great upper city, the great city of Upper Egypt, which the Hellens call Egyptian Thebes, and the god himself is called by them Ammon. To him came Thuth and showed his inventions, desiring that the other Egyptians might be allowed to have the benefit of them. He enumerated them, and Damos inquired about their several uses, and praised some of them and censured others, as he approved or disapproved of them. It would take a long time to repeat all that Thamos said to Thuth in praise or blame of the various arts, but when they came to letters, this, said Thuth, will make the Egyptians wiser and give them better memories. It is a specific, both for the memory and for the wit. Thamuz replied, O most ingenious Thuth, the parent or inventor of an art is not always the best judge of the utility or inutility of his own inventions to the users of them. And in this instance, you who are the father of letters from a paternal love of your own children have been led to attribute to them a quality which they cannot have. For this discovery of yours will create forgetfulness in the learner's souls, because they will not use their memories. They will trust to the external written characters and not remember of themselves. The specific which you have discovered is not an aid to memory, but to reminiscence. And you give your disciples not truth, but only the semblance of truth. They will be hearers of many things, and will have learned nothing. They will appear to be omniscient, and will generally know nothing. They will be tiresome company, having the show of wisdom without the reality. Phaedrus replies, Yes, Socrates, you can easily invent tales of Egypt or any other country. And Socrates says, There was a tradition in the temple of Dodona that oaks first gave prophetic utterances. The men of old, unlike in their simplicity to young philosophy, deemed that if they heard the truth even from oak or rock, it was enough for them. Whereas you seem to consider not whether a thing is or is not true, but who the speaker is and from what country the tale comes. Then another major scholar, whose reputation is somewhat dubious in the mainstream 
academia, but whose work speaks for itself, I think, is Eric Newman, who condenses and consolidates the work of his teacher Jung in a marvelous way in his work, The Origins and History of Consciousness. Here he remarks on these points. Cretomycenean culture is likewise a typical domain of the Great Mother. The same groups of symbolic and ritual characteristics recur as are to be met with in Egypt and in Canaan, and in Phoenicia, Babylonia, Syria, and the Near Eastern cultures generally, among the Hittites as well as among the Indians. Aegean culture forms a link between Egypt and Libya on the one side, and Greece and Asia Minor on the other. For us it is of no consequence how the currents of culture flowed historically, because the purity of the archetypal figure is of far greater importance to our theme than the question of priority. He mentions that the Credo-Mycenaean religion is unclear because the texts are as yet undeciphered. Got to get Prince Pooh over there. Uh, and then a few pages later, this is page 80 in this edition, uh, he mentions this. Equally significant is the history of Cadmus, the legendary brother of Europa, who came from Phoenicia to found the city of Thebes. To him, Herodotus attributes the transmission of the Osiris-Dionysus mysteries from Egypt to Pythagoras. In other words, Herodotus traces the origin of the late Greek mysteries and the Pythagorean and Orphic forerunners back to Egypt via Phoenicia. He also connects the Dodonaean Zeus, the phallic Hermes, and the pre-Grecian or Pelasgian cult of the Kabiri at Samothrace with the Osiris of Egypt and the Ammon cult of Libya. Earlier, these connections were denied by science, but today they are obvious, since the cultural continuity that extended from Libya and Egypt via Canaanite, Phoenicia, and Crete to Greece is supported by a wealth of factual evidence. So there, detractors of the Black Athena. Uh, but back in Earthbound, in Foresight, we get instead the substrate of the city itself, which awaits exploration. If Mimosini is the mother of the museums, who are the fathers? An important question, closely related to the riddle of the Sphinx in the Oedipus story, after all. And here's Heraclitus' way of answering. He says, war is the father of all. Simple enough. We get a war of words between fork and spoon, jockeying for discoveries and scoops. This war gives way to a brutal series of battles taking place in the sewers of Foreside. It turns out to be light shining far below in the sewers, guarded by and perhaps emanating from a giant rat, which is that something extraordinary always mentioned in air quotes, which Spoon has found. Whether he is extraordinary or not, and what that means, is Raskolnikov's obsession in the essential novel Crime and Punishment, at least according to the investigatory Porfiry Petrovich. It says... Um, but how did you find out that the article was mine? I signed it with an initial. By chance, and only the other day, through the editor, an acquaintance of mine. I was quite interested. As I recall, I was considering the psychological state of the criminal throughout the course of the crime. Yes, sir. And you maintain that the act of carrying out a crime is always accompanied by illness. Very, very original, but... As a matter of fact, what interested me was not that part of your article, but a certain thought tossed in at the end, which unfortunately you present only vaguely, by way of a hint. In short, if you recall, a certain hint is presented that there supposedly exist in the world certain persons who can, that is, who not only can, but are fully entitled to commit all sorts of crimes and excesses, and to whom the law supposedly does not apply. Raskolnikov smiled at this forced and deliberate distortion of his idea. What? How's that? The right to commit crimes, but not because they are victims of the environment, Rasumikin inquired, even somewhat fearfully. No, no, not quite because of that, poor Fury replied. The whole point in 
is that, in his article, all people are somehow divided into the ordinary and the extraordinary. The ordinary must live in obedience and have no right to transgress the law, because they are, after all, ordinary. While the extraordinary have the right to commit all sorts of crimes and in various ways to transgress the law, because in point of fact they are extraordinary. That is how you had it, unless I'm mistaken. But what is this? It can't possibly be so, Razumikin muttered in perplexity. Raskolnikov smiled again. He realized all at once what the point was and where he was being led. He remembered his article. He decided to accept the challenge. Anyway. Before he'll let you fight your way through, though, first, Spoon demands the signature of his celebrity crush, the singer Venus at the theater next door. He requests, he requests it on an eraser, uh, but he will accept the signed banana peel that she happens to give you. And her name, of course, refers to the mother of Aeneas, Roman Venus, or Greek Aphrodite, known to have been caught in flagrante with Mars, Ares, god of war, by her husband Hephaestus, a.k.a. Vulcan, the limping maker. This Venus sings and sparkles in the big city, but she's from Tucson originally. Her mother there struggles to remember her stage name. I wonder if anything happens if you show her the signed banana peel. Too late. Mr. Spoon snatches it for his own purposes, perhaps to fuel some further rivalry with Fork. Down in the sewers, wading in the sludge to bypass the barrels, ghosts possess you, deadly mice bite, roaches encroach and attack continuously. You combat the underside of the city. Not riffraff like Raskolnikov, the impoverished intellectual, or Aliona Ivanovna, the sacrificial pawnbroker, or Mamelodov, the drunk functionary, but instead with the pollution and excrement nourishing these more literally monstrous denizens of the depths. And mercifully, there's a room with a magic butterfly halfway along for you to recover, thoughtful of the dungeon maker. Also, be careful not to miss the broken bazooka, Jeff may be clever enough to get working again, dealing damage to all foes when you're tired of stealing their HP hungrily. And I'll just point out again how bosses are effectively optional up to this point, since as long as you bring a few bottle rockets, you can knock them out in a handful of rounds. So much for the plague rat of doom. Emerging in the backyard of the department store with a brick wall around it, Ness has a vision of a baby bottle, your wounds are healed and little ghosts exercised. And there's actually a gilded treasure box like they have in Dalam with a carrot key off to the side of Magnet Hill. Don't miss it. The aesthetics of the box as much as what's inside let you know to go back there next. But first, gain some experience points. As the theater owner ex exclaims, they're the one thing money can't buy. And in earning them, you'll also be gaining money, her favorite thing. Magnet Hill is the only sanctuary in the middle of a town, and the only one that you can see long before reaching it. Not much of a hill, really. More of a little, tiny pyramid. But it's also unique in that it links via the carrot key directly onto the next sanctuary. There's no further exploration or grubbing for autographs that's necessary here. Nor is there anyone else obvious to try the carrot key on. Though there's that shark in the arcade who likes fresh vegetables, he isn't blocking any doorways. So teleport back to Delam, the game's only location that can only be reached by teleportation. Grab some brain food lunch and jars of deli sauce. They can be purchased now that you have dollar sign dollars. You'll see the pooter is still at it, and the folk are weeping parenthetically about monsters appearing. The scribe up by the palace seems to have figured out immortality to his satisfaction, because now he's musing on existing and exiting, the thing no one in Dalam can do without teleportation. Talarama, you may recall, from whose monkey friends Ness learned to teleport, does know about and even names Pooh way before meeting him in Ness's dream. Perhaps he's found his way to the desert from Dalam, but if so, it would be breaking that rule about having to go to a place before being able to teleport there, just as Pooh did, come to think of it, in getting into Summers. 
Perhaps the psychic link of the dream gets around that. The photo man seems to think these things matter, as he appears inside and outside the palace now that you're there with the whole party, just as he did on your coming out of the museum. His spinning seems to look a little bit now like a teleport beta move. Anyway, any disappointment that you might have been feeling about Pooh's relative weakness upon his joining the party has by now hopefully transitioned to glee at his rapid growth coming through the sewers. Using the carrot key, you gain access to the cave guarded by lagomorph statues, only to find it is infested by swift ball-lightning fiends, the thundercloud, the flute player, the kiss of death, and the x-ray man, all dangerous, especially in combination, if you don't take them out quickly. So lay on the sigh and munch your brain food lunches and magic tarts at will. This dungeon is novel, too, in that you proceed not through a series of doors between rooms so much as along a branching tree of choices of which hole to plummet down through, which drops you into the room beneath. Until you find the Bracer of Kings, Pooh has no equipment at all, so going slightly astray to reach it first is worth it. At the door out the other side of the cave at last, thunder and storm await, intertwined, like the caduceus of Mercury Hermes, or the yin and yang in their circle. Threatening as they look, thunder and storm count as one foe, and are easily enough frozen and blown apart. And now you're able to explore the caves carefree, gaining all sorts of levels. Finding the first rock candy, which randomly boosts one stat for one of the friends. Through that door, on Pink Cloud, hugging the side of the mountain underneath Dalam, the vision this time is of Ness's mom as a young woman. As we're now three quarters of the way there, and have had two sanctuary locations in such quick succession, it seems that the game is inviting us to compare some of what we've seen in these visions so far. Many of the connections between the locations should begin to be leaping into focus, if you can remember what they all are, and if you can't, there's a wiki fandom. To sum up from there, at the giant step, Ness catches a glimpse of a small, cute puppy. At the Lilliput steps, Ness briefly has a vision of a baby in a red cap. At the Milky Well, Ness thinks he hears his mother from far away. She says, be a thoughtful, strong boy. At the Rainy Circle, Ness catches a whiff of steak, but just for a second. At Magnet Hill, Ness sees a baby bottle, but just for an instant. At the Pink Cloud, Ness has a short vision of seeing his mother when she was young. So in general, the pattern seems to move from the ground to the sky, through the liminal states of liquid pools and metal hills, and the visions all seem to relate to early childhood. In the fourth and fifth year sanctuary, food figures prominently. We get the vision of the mother, too, including an element of nourishment, for a baby at least, but like the sound of her words from Milky Well, it goes beyond that to call up further reserves of character and resolve. I also like to think about the contrast between the pink cloud hovering low down on the mountainside and the place of Mu on its lonesome spire with his violent vision of the ancestors. Maybe you can guess what your next vision will be, but I think the last one will come as a surprise. Only the concluding phrase of the eight melodies awaits. Next week, I'll try to have another conversation to liven things up, and then at last we'll be ready to proceed to Scaraba, braving the Kraken in the midst of our journey by sea. Until then, take care. And now, if you'll humor me, if you're still listening, since we looked at the museums this week, I thought of doing a showcase of some writing from the past my own version of the pharaoh's training pot and pencil box in summers. Huge! No, not these. I mean the bones at the Forsyth Museum. Like them, a replica of something that once lived, and who knows, might still have a little life in it. A puff of inspiration from the video game muses. More can be found on the Bookworm blog and on starmen.net. So what I have for you here, a short poem about Delam. A short story about winters and a short story about summers, and then a kind of experimental dialogue thing 
called Pinocchio. So. On towards dawn and nighttime, Balm is taking leave of old Dalam, from golden dome and grass alike, from mud-walled huts, from lonely spike, the place of Mu, where sleeps Prince Pooh. The starlit dew must leave him too. The stars must fade, for first light strews the east, that is the right side of the screen, opposite west, where even now, bereft of rest, Dad sets a kiss upon Mom's brow. That's no monkey's love, no sad blue cow. It's still dark there, too dark to see just who this man called Dad might be. But he steps out, locks the door tight, and breathes a sigh into the night. That's no sesame, but a man who's off to work too soon again. In Dalam, far east, the dawn pulls free as mist, the dew upon all those things I said before. It gives the land but one kiss more, the morning's last, and in the breeze is spirited to cloudscape seas. There Dalam men and women folk ply cloudy fields from paths of oak, reaping life noodles and the rice that will their tummies well suffice. They bundle up the tender stalks and bear them back to bustling docks, working in soft lethargy, dulled with sleep, no energy is yet banked up within their limbs. Some monks are droning morning hymns. A kettle sings, then all break off. All direct their eyes aloft. But why should it have gone off course? What I say is, look to the source. Dear old dad of earth's chosen one. And the mysteries soon undone. It's my Dalam poem. Here's the thing for winters. This is a story I once heard from an old minor bird. I heard the words one evening in Toto as I sat on the quay, waiting for someone. That's pronounced key, sorry. They floated on the wind. They bobbed on the surface of the water like the boats roped up nearby. And I looked around for the speaker. I saw my face reflected, looking around from underwater. The watery image wavered and dipped with slight noises and softly slapped itself against the wall I sat upon. And there, in a chink in the wall, it's a minor bird. Its nest was stuffed with withered dune grasses and with the wrappers of cheap and expensive wares alike. Its feathers were of the palest possible yellow. Its eyes were caked shut with room. It spoke as from the depths of sleep, and its words were lulling. It spoke to nobody in particular, but I happened to be listening. You will say a minor bird cannot tell stories, only repeat words it hears. Perhaps over time these words became confused, resulting in this strange tale. All the Tessie watchers were in their little tents, watching the sides bow inwards and ripple like sails, listening to the howl of the wind, piling onto their sleeping bags all the furs they had. The soup froze in its kettle. Outside, the gruff goats played in the snow, scuffing up the perfect white drifts and blowing their breath out happily. They clattered over the rocks to an abandoned cave. Someone had painstakingly made paths in there, and they found themselves respecting them, not stepping over the lines of stones, pausing at the dead ends as though reading the signs. Someone took their picture at one point, not seeming to mind the cold any more than they did. They went out again to play. Tessie was sleeping peacefully on the sand at the bottom of the lake. Tessie had a dream. It was a very strange and a very clear dream. All the tents were rippling among the swirling snow. The boarding school loomed squat and black, but some of its windows were still bright. The gruff goats were bounding through the blizzard. Their hooves shook the ground. Frost formed on the tents and cracked as quickly, broken by the snapping of the fabric. The school loomed, leaned. Gruff goats hope, hopped onto the tops of the pine trees and ran around up there. The tents unfurled and sailed like leaves on the wind, following currents outlined in snowflakes. The school flipped over on its back, and children scrambled out through the bright windows. The school slid sideways, away with the children on top, a boarding school, a surfboard. The gruff goats sprang from the trees to the tents, where Tussie watchers looked around with binoculars that were slowly turning into telescopes. They all sailed off into the night, the night blown along with them by the snow. They came to a place with many islands. Some had volcanoes. A kraken, tasting the snow on the air, had knitted itself into a giant slipper to curl up and stay warm. The school surfed on the blizzard and skimmed the ocean, and the tents whipped by it like so many leaves on the wind, until they all ran aground on the beach. The night got caught on some of the umbrellas, and the gruff goats jumped on them like pine trees. They thought the sand was a bit like snow, so they played in it. 
The snow fell on the waves and was dashed into the sand, fell on the patio of the restaurant and on the balconies of the hotel, fell on the people coming out to have a look. That enterprising man who poured water in the cellar of the Gelato de Resort put their heads together and whispered excitedly. The Tessie watchers looked at the sailors through their telescopes, and the sailors murmured appreciatively about their seaworthy tents. The minor bird got a cold, so it knocked out. It knocked on the cat's house and was let in. The two entrepreneurs thought they might finally be able to compete with the lady who sold magic tarts. By the time the night freed itself and limped off, they had invented snow cones. And now the winter's story goes into the summer's story. It starts with the quote from Lucky. Just think of our songs and imagine the runaway five singing somewhere far, far away. Even the rain falls luxuriously in summers, or so it seems to me, but the night has gone to my head. If I start talking nonsense, please don't mind it. We played a gig, when was it, an hour, a day ago? And then we turned the stage over and went down into the crowd. I always loved that, and that was one party I won't soon forget, that party, although it is all very confused in my mind. The best things always are. They had us play unplugged, that I do remember. Lucky crooned without a mic, and it seemed right for that place. The sun's just set behind some clouds on the horizon. There's something obscene about rain falling on the sea, something so majestic and obscene. I'm sorry, I always make a spectacle of myself. I should be content to just let it happen, and to let those drops that fall on me pool upon my face. What was I going to say? Oh, the glimmer of the last rays of the sun. The glimmer of the last rays of the sun on the sheen of the street reminded me of Lucky's voice. And now the street lights are on. Their sheen on the wet street reminds me of the husky sacks. I held it a little in check to not overpower Lucky without a mic. People are hurrying by from bar to bar, club to club. I think I recognize a few faces, maybe a few dresses, and I would have no doubts if their necks and shoulders were not wrapped up in raincoats. But they are, and they hurry by in the rain. But I'm still dressed in the clothes I wore, and my face is open to the rain. So some of them recognize me. They wave and call to me in many accents. Someone passing close by murmurs, Stoic club last night. I heard you rocked. Can you give me the number? But that I cannot do. I don't know it myself, because they invited us. I understand. And she turns away, and I think it's about time I did the same. There's a room in the hotel I've been waiting for, I realize. I start walking. I must have spent the night, the remains of the night there. I think my sacks must still be there. What is it about this room? I must need to sleep. I must want to see the rain out the window, the one facing the courtyard, and watch the rain falling through the trees. I want to be in the dry room and look out on the night for a change. And then the dialogue, Pinocchio. I go to Foreside to pay, play pickup games. I go to Foreside to play pickup games. There's one or two other kids there with abilities like mine. The townhouses peter out as they come towards the bay, and there's a stretch of grass, mostly dirt, that follows the dead end street right up to the shore. We hop the fence and go into the field, and almost any afternoon you care to show up, there'll be someone to play with till it's too dark to see the ball. One day, when exactly? Not a Beatles song, but XX Day. I teleport downtown to look at the dinosaur bones a while, instead of going straight to the field. The bones of an animal that once lived so long ago, so terrifying, so sublime, so alive. Not just bones, but I have seen dinosaurs. Good times. They're still lumbering around down there where few people go. It is quiet in the museum. Good place to think. Then I go outside. I walk to the northwest of that diamond-blocked metropolis, to the outskirts. I think about dinosaur bones and about living. Of course, dying is at the beginning and end of my thought, but I've had my head handed to me a few times. I've been to the hospital for my fallen friends, and I've awakened in hospital beds to see their faces first thing of all, relieved, and then accepting. I've blinked in the light. I've always got up again to go for it. At an intersection, Jackie's ahead. I happen to glance down the street to my left. I see a building I remember, with a striped awning like a cafe's and a sign out front. Instead of going to play baseball, this is where I stop. I ignore the sign and come under the awning. I turn a key in the lock and go in. 
You want to know about the key? It couldn't be more simple. You don't have to do anything like spend the night in the seaside shack with the bad key machine in Jeff's inventory while outside the ghost of Starman lurks. Or perform with the Runaway Five at Everdred's funeral in the Chaos Theater, then pack his ashes into bottle rockets and watch the fireworks for exactly as long as it takes to recite his last haiku, after which Carpenter transforms the key to the cabin into this key. You don't have to do that to get this key. To think and imagine these things, or something like them, is enough. And voila, you have the key to this cafe-looking place. It's like a metaphor or something. When I unlock the door, it makes that cool sound effect. I remember dreaming of Jeff opening lockers in snow wood. I have very clear and very strange dreams. For all I know, this may be one of them. It's a freeing thought, or would be, if I ever felt anything but utterly free. Inside, it is dim and silent and calm as an attic. Nobody has been here for so long that the objects, the desks and chairs and lamps, having no one to share it with, have soaked up all the reality. They have become something to study and lose yourself in, like exhibits in a museum, or rather artifacts still at the dig site. We are kindred spirits. Across this front workroom is a door. I go in. The lights come on slowly, work for a few seconds, and then stop working. Think of when I first stepped out of my room after the meteor landed, how the lights came on. But then think also of how news about the next one comes in short-lived flashes and is never reliable. And that is the lights in this room. It is a seminar room. A projection screen hangs perfectly still on the wall. Wall and screen stitched up with the daylight slanting through the drawn blinds. I check the projector. A scene comes up. A baby in a red cap. The next one is a cute puppy. They are gently blurred around the edges, with colors like you see in your mind. I notice another door, not the one I came in by. That would be in the fourth wall, if you're counting. First door, screen, windows, new door. Some people seem to think that's significant. Whatever. I open it. It's a stairwell. Just one flight. I go up, hearing my footfalls. That's the second noise, if you're listening. I'm in a hallway with a carpet and two doors, warm, lit by a skylight, but narrow this hallway. I hear a toilet flush and a sink running. Whoever it is whistles. The far door opens. He looks a lot like the man on the cliff. He nods. Who do you think I modeled him after? When I do a job, I do it well. I'm a man's man. And his voice, my dad's. Oktuska. None of that. You know who I am. Itoi regards me a moment, then goes through the other door. I follow. A typewriter, books and magazines, clay figurines, a sketchbook, and a guitar. Itoi nudges a pile of, right, of papers and they fall, collapsing into a flurry of individual scraps of light and airy noises. He watches sardonically and offers me the chair thus cleared, himself dropping onto a mattress on the floor. He gets his legs under the blanket and leans against the wall. I sit. There's a nice breeze from the open window. Real nice. A few sheets flutter out on its draft. What would you think if you saw papers spilling out of the second-story window of a cafe? The top page on the pile had read, Earthbound 2. Complete storyboards, assorted sketches, etc. And there followed an illegible scribble of a signature. A toy speaks. It's been a while. I see you sometimes, so I won't lie. Sometimes I sneak out to the lot where you play baseball. You know the bushes by the water? That's where I hide. No, Ness, don't look sympathetic. I wouldn't want you to let me play. I'm too old. That's just sad. I guess you saw my title page. I'll let you in on a little secret. Only you. Every page in that pile said exactly the same thing as the one on top. Look at them scattered over the floor. He's right. But I didn't sign a single one of them. Every signature is unique. Each one is by a different person. I think there may be a hundred thousand pages or more, although it really could be less. It's not that I haven't been able to think of ideas for the next game. Give me some credit. I could have storyboarded at least two or three sequels by now, as good or better than Earthbound. In fact, they're all in my head, even now, and it's a great effort to leave them there. And it isn't that I couldn't have worked out the technical side of things, though I admit that's harder, more time-consuming. No, I've negotiated the programming and the marketing business before, and I could do it again. I will never make Earthbound 2, 
For the same reason, I will never play baseball with you. Do you understand? I shake my head, no. You are as exceptional as I expected you to be. Yours is so vigorous and so purely active a nature that you could never know of my trouble, and I am glad to admit that. You know whose signatures those were, though. Of course you do. Mostly people like me, but a few like you. All the people who are waiting for Earthbound 2, who in the meantime make provisional stand-ins for it, fan art and fanfics, websites, hacks, and even full-blown games, or who, if they're more like you, just think about it fondly once in a while. But something amazing is happening. They're growing up. I wasn't sure at first my plan would work. I took it kind of for granted that they would grow up. That, that's not what I meant. That's not the part I was worried about. No, I thought it was essential to work on the sequel for a while, to lead them on and then abandon them. But now I see that even silence from my end would have provoked them enough, though perhaps not as many of them. So I may have been cruel, over the top, or maybe I just wanted so badly to make the sequel that I had to wrestle with myself to stop. Making little announcements now and again is plenty to keep them at a high pitch of intensity. These people who love Earthbound are more important to me than my own art. Sometimes when I am very weak I ask myself, what would it hurt to give them Earthbound too? But I think of them and of what they will make, and I console myself by thinking how puny the ideas shackled inside my head will seem then. By frustrating them, I've given them a problem to solve. Each of them, in pursuing his or her talents, will solve it in their own ways. Think of all the art I've inspired as Earthbound too. And for these kids, it's all just practice. When they really get going, my holding back now will be worth it. He sighs and trails off. The giddy affectation of ease and confidence passes, having worn him out, and it leaves in its place a blank frown. I think he knows he's lying to himself. I could reply, there are not people like you and people like me. There's only people. I'm complete the way you could, with luck, with guts, be. I'm perfect the way only someone you love and idealize can be perfect. Your signatures are growing up. You are right about that. Look at the coordination and skill of some of these drawings. The thought goes into some of these stories, the complexity, the subtlety, the sheer length of some of these articles. But as they grow up, their tastes will mature too. Not many of them will always love Earthbound. They'll outgrow it. And even if they don't, the way they love it won't be the way they did as children. You've caught them in a web. I don't deny it. I don't deny you've done it ingeniously. But you were wrong to do it. If it was really because you value these artworks of theirs so highly, the ones you've inspired and the one they've yet to make, the potential you've helped stir up. But I don't think you care about that. This is only how you try to console yourself, pretending this is your noble aim, and you are not consoled. I think that if you are honest with yourself, you'll see any inspiration, any subsequent leading on was incidental, a result of your own dissatisfaction with your life, one you're finally confronting. If this is true, you did the right thing. By the by, my own opinion is that you overstate how deeply it has affected most fans. If they have that creative impulse in them, it will be expressed, demand expression, with or without you, however strong your influence. So when you say you won't make Earthbound 2 for the same reason you won't play baseball with me, what do you really mean? That you're ashamed of yourself. I admire you for it. It's a start, but this shame too is a crutch. It's easy to feel sorry for yourself. Managing to remove the cause for that shame is hard. You're trying. It's a struggle for you right now, but you are making progress. You don't have a computer anymore, only a typewriter. No studio, only a guitar. I hope you blushed when I looked at your clay figurines. Hopefully they're your daughters. Maybe you're just holding on to them for her. That wouldn't be quite as bad as a grown man playing with toys. But when you are really happy, you'll love your clay figures again, and your projector slides. When you're happy, you will make Earthbound too. You won't lie to yourself and say that you have some grand selfless scheme and that a bunch of kids' admiration and imitation means so much to you. Take heart, Itoy. Believe what I say. I could say that to him, but he knows it all already. Just give him time. Itoy has a home and a family. He has a life most would think satisfying, a life most would frankly envy. He makes video games for a living. But think about what that really means. He's an entertainer of children, a toy maker. 
He has to confront more directly than most men his doubts, his feelings of insufficiency. He has, by his talents, perhaps contributed to the triviality he perceives in the society and culture of his world. He can't ignore it all like some people do, those who get rich making the same game over and over, and so don't ask questions. Behind everything that fascinates people in the game stands this man. His imagination might have led him to poetry, or indeed has. Only his language is the game and everything in it. He has drifted among modes of expression, newspapers and movies and books, and the game is newest and least limited. But being most powerful and most immersive, it most detaches its audience from life. Can the game really aspire to be nothing more than a prostitute, to relax the body and annihilate for a while the mind? Can it engage the imagination only artificially, with pleasant, forgettable distractions, or can it find the heart through it? Now, Itoi has seen this last is possible. If anything, this has been his lasting impact, simply showing that a game can spill over its narrow conventions and be unique and be loved so much by so many. A game done right for its own sake and for ours can endure. The very success of his vision has become his dilemma. Is his daughter perhaps to grow up in a world where the best of human achievement will no longer be reflected in literature or architecture or music, but in games? Itoi nods, almost drunkenly. Ness, what can I do? The natural world is decaying, and humanity is finally in harmony with it, if only in that respect. That the earth is dying. That is the theme of all the final fantasies, the crystals, you know, very heavy-handed. And what do people enjoy best about those games? The fighting, the graphics, the story. All are awful. The fights have no drama. It's all unimaginative monsters lined up in a row to curse her over and tell to lose HP, while the redundant, exciting music thumps away. The graphics are all for atmosphere or dazzle. Towns are peaceful and caves are mysterious, and there's never anything to find except what you already knew you would. Since it is necessary for getting to the next area, the situation, there's no real characters, only things that started as stereotypes and have since degenerated into androgynous caricatures of themselves, and the plots are pure escapism, with no truth about anything human to be communicated, save perhaps an ironic, unintentional comment on the decadence we display in buying these things. I did what anyone with a shred of dignity would have done. Simple little things. I made enemies you could at least see before they hurt you. And not all tired monsters, but tiny ironies like cops and hippies and cultists. And a final boss representing the only real evil in the world. That evil in people that makes them hate. I broke the graphics down into what a child would draw if he had the coordination. So it would charm and not distract, not waste my time or anyone else's. And I made sinister music play in some houses, and made bizarre items useful. I let the characters be sublimated into the people playing, gave them no angst, and many unexpected, memorable adventures. I improved on it all in such a small way, and they call me a genius. Other people make games without thinking at all. I made them thinking to mock those people, pointing up their idiocies. And even this little amount of thought resulted in something classic. If I approached the game seriously, ignoring everything that has come before except what I learned from my mistakes on my own projects, I could create not mawkishness, but pathos. Characters who could walk down the street without being laughed at. Enemies who are actually dangerous and who are frighteningly plausible as humans. Battles that mean something for the story, a story that hasn't been told before quite in the way I will tell it, because I can make you live it. The game being a world I've made to the smallest detail to reinforce that experience and nothing else. No one has even tried to make a great game yet, Ness. The theme of the world's, the natural world's decay. I feel a breeze from outside and remember that the earth is my mother and how warm the sun is and the peace to be found in certain places you make your own. The destruction is accelerating now. But it is still so slow. It's like a man's descent towards the grave, never leaving his ordinary experience, hardly ever appreciating even that. Though he would never admit it, his life is defined only by the sharp moments of clarity when he admits to himself that time is running out. That one theme is all that's there. And people ignore even that. They memorize lists of classes and equipment with all their attendant statistics. These are not the people I'll make my games for. 
There also exist, I must believe, people who are the antithesis of these. An audience waiting for a game like mine. Itoy, there's only people. You talk too much. Just make your game and go home to your wife and daughter. You're more than a voice on the telephone. No media, no art or technology or any mixture of them is really a threat to life. Only people are. A person is also what is best. A person makes the art. A person interprets it and responds. A person makes the TV, watches a while to see what's on, then turns it off, picks up the phone and talks to his friend on the other side of the country, or hears his mom's sweet voice. No stream of advertisements, neither the contemplation of a masterpiece, can drown us or make us perfect, and such is life. No amount of talent can make the beauty we envision when undertaking a work emerge quite entire and true when we've finished. Itoi, do you accept this? Most games are awful. Is that any of your business? Look to your own work and stop worrying about the society, the culture. Those words don't even mean anything anymore, the way they're tossed around. It's not that important, really. Do you accept this? Itoi, it's getting late. Leave it alone. Take a break. He has fallen silent. Then he grins. You jerk, because... <laughs> I wrote that, even though you're mixing up the order. Take a break? I will, in a way, but never completely. Not until I die. Until my consciousness goes for good. Everything I do, resting or working, goes nowhere but into me. The lineage of my ancestors can't haunt me. They can't paralyze me. They are only my memories now. The things they've made I can use or learn from, just like the rest of my experience. But I live for my descendants. Everything I am shapes my daughter's memory of me. And when my consciousness goes, that's where I will stay. That's more like any toy. Yeah, you're cool. Whatever. Of course, you don't resolve anything in an afternoon. Nothing is really as neat and tidy as it seems. Even those old fables they tell children have their moon side just like games today can. There's always loose threads. Or how could we keep knitting away all down the ages? I stand up, and so does he. There is some daylight left. I'll play baseball with you. I'll bring my daughter, and we'll teach her to play. Tomato's article, It's Not Bukista, and Hotel Dark Moon's quote section, along with Tim Rogers' The Literature of the Moment, A Critique of Mother 2, were all helpful articles that I used in writing that piece called Pinocchio. Well, I just wanted to share those with you. If you're still listening, I'll say this one more thing, that I'm fascinated endlessly by the rare media that are made available by the Internet. And this is a fascination that may not outlive my generation, and so I'll never tire of saying it. But check out Museum Day by S and or S and or S. One of the rare Sufjan songs I've come across, if you get the chance. Because if there were a theme for this episode, that would be it. Till next time, take care.